So hello everyone. Today we are finishing off the Armor of God series. I'm super excited because I am personally biased, but I think this is the coolest um, part or item of the, the Armor of God that Paul outlines in Ephesians. So with that in mind, let's just let's just kind of like orient ourselves. So what have we what have we covered? We covered the belt of truth and how important it is. It ties in our loose ends, it gets us ready for battle. We covered the breastplate of righteousness, um, the gospel of peace, shield of faith with Freddie. Last week was the helmet of salvation with Dave. And now we have the sword of the spirit, which is pretty cool. So I wrote like an overall big picture idea. And it's that for today to keep in mind, standing firm demands that we live a scripture saturated life. So that's the overarching kind of like theme or idea. Cool. So to stand firm. So we kind of heard a little bit about that from Shady, which was maybe five or so weeks ago. And, and, and that kind of um, is the right frame of mind for what we're trying to get at here with this series. It's that we're really in this battle and it's difficult and we're, we're going to struggle and we're set out to be um, attacked. So we need to be on our guard because it's not a joke. And, and the weapons of um, that, that Paul's talking about in Ephesians, where the powers and principalities, they're crafty. So we need to be on our guard. Um, cool. So, yeah, we need to stand firm. And how do we stand firm? We stand firm. Uh, we need to be filled with the scripture of God, as we're going to talk about today. Uh, it details his instruction, his character, his promises. And only then will we be able to stand in the battle we've been placed in. Cool. So the sword of the spirit, if we're in person, I'd ask us one question here. We're not. So I'm just going to answer it myself. Um, the sword of the spirit, what's so different about the sword of the spirit? We talked about the belt of truth, all these other armor pieces. It's actually an offensive item. The sword is inherently offensive. It, it, it is used in battle. It also does serve a necessary defensive function, as if you've ever seen like any sword duels or watch any movies or even lightsaber duels if you're a Star Wars person. Um, why would Paul list a weapon for offense with the other pieces of armor? Interesting thought. So let's talk about what Paul has in mind. The Roman sword, this sword is incredible. I'm not here to talk too much about these, these physical items, but um, it's, it was known as a gladius, which is where gladiator comes from. It's a, it's a double-edged sword, and it's, it's sharpened at the top, at, at the tip for like stabbing. Um, some people or historians call it the sword that conquered the world because the Roman army was incredible. Incredible is probably not the right word, but um, yeah, they were very valiant in their efforts. So what I'm getting at is Paul isn't messing around. The sword of the spirit. He wants us to be ready for this war that we're in and actually to be on the offense. Um, so let's talk about the sword of the spirit. I'm going to get my Bible up. What is the sword of the spirit? Now, this would be a very kind of like mystical uh, term in my opinion, but it's really nice that Paul actually tells us what the sword of the spirit is. So that's really great. So the sword of the spirit is actually the word of God. Um, it's biblical truth. It's understanding the character of God, his promises and the like. And we've read Ephesians 6 a bunch and we won't read it again tonight. Um, but Ephesians 6 isn't the only place where God's word is described as a sword. Um, if, you, if you recall, the author of Hebrews also makes reference to it. I have it up here. For the word of God is living and powerful 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So very clear words there. The word of God is even sharper than the Roman sword. It is capable, capable of piercing to the deepest level of one's heart and attitude and is also a tool of discernment in the hands of a skilled user. And we'll see that tonight. We'll definitely see that tonight. Cool. So what purpose does the sword of the spirit serve? So a sword serves two purposes. It can be used for both offense and defense. So this is, these are some minor points that I'll make here before I get on to my major points later. So we can use or we can wield our sword in the battle uh, or in this battle in an act of evangelism or in the act of evangelism. So using the word of God to live out our purpose on the battlefield. It's not a focus of today, but I will mention it. It's, a, it's essentially or inherently the gospel message in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Therefore, go, or as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Paul also understands the power of the word of God, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So the word of God. The word of God and the gospel message is our antidote to the perpetual broken condition of humanity. So wield it knowing that it carries great responsibility. So that's just a minor point I wanted to throw in there. And also the sword of the spirit in practical defense um, can also come in the form of apologetics from the word apologia. And you may know it literally means defense. It's a legal word. So if you were accused in a court, you would give your apologia in the court. Um, and let's see what Peter has to say about this. First Peter 3.15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You need to be able to use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, as Paul writes, to defend your faith. Awesome. So those were some minor points that I just wanted to open with before we get into what I really want to talk about today. So this is where the sword of the spirit really shines. The sword of the spirit is our greatest tool. It's our strongest tool in our, um, in our spiritual battle against the powers and principalities of this world. Now, when I was thinking about it, uh, the sword of the spirit in action, if only we could get like a glimpse of how we can learn to use it in these battles. And the good thing is we actually have a really perfect demonstration of how we can take the fight to Satan with the sword of the spirit. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter four. It's Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And I think this is um, really exemplifies what we're trying to get at tonight. Cool. So let's read together Matthew four, one to 11. I'll read it out. I'm on the NIV, FYI. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, 
so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So that was a very powerful passage and we'll break it down here. So from verse three, this, this, is, this is where things get really interesting. So the tempter comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to, come, to become bread. If you are the son of God, what's Satan getting at here? Satan is not necessarily questioning the deity of God. I don't see it as that. He's challenging him to prove it or demonstrate that through miraculous works. What's the first thing you actually notice? Again, I would ask this in person. What's the first thing you notice about Jesus' response in verse 4? So for me, it's actually that he responds. He doesn't just sit there and think to himself, well, like, that's obviously not true. You know, if anyone ever says anything about you, like, yeah, that's not true. I'm the son of God. I could do that if I wanted. But no, that's not what happens. He boldly fights back, wielding the sword expertly to answer Satan with the word of God. So that's the first thing that I took away from that. How amazing is response here? It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, which is from Deuteronomy 8.3. So Jesus, let me get this straight, actually. So Jesus here is being tempted. Jesus, the son of God, uses what? He uses scripture to fight against Satan's temptation. He doesn't draw on any extra special resources that we don't have access to or are beyond our reach. No, he knew the word of God intimately, and that was his defense. This is a quote I found from Charles Spurgeon. I think it's amazing. He says, out flashed the sword of the spirit. Our Lord will fight with no other weapon. He could have spoken new revelations, but chose to say, it is written. So I think that's kind of what we're getting at here. It's a beautiful display of Christ using the sword of the spirit in this spiritual battle. So here's where things get really interesting. Satan tries again, but he has a trick up his sleep. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And that's from Psalm 91, verse 11. Satan says, for it is written. What's going on here? This should actually scare you guys. It really frightens me. Um, the devil is no stranger to God's word, and we can fall victim to his schemes if we aren't careful. And we'll, we'll briefly touch on this later as well. Is there anything wrong with what Satan said here? He's just quoting a psalm. Maybe he reads a bit of David in his spare time. No, as Satan is, he is inherently deceitful in nature. He does not quote the text accurately. The text in Psalm 91 actually says um, to keep you in all your ways. So to test God in this way was not of Jesus' way. It was not the way of the Savior or Messiah. God had never promised nor ever given any protection of angels in sinful and selfish ways if Jesus were to give in here. The text is wrongly applied because it was not used to teach or encourage, but instead to deceive. And how does Jesus reply to this? Jesus replies again with scripture, but applied correctly. He knew who he was 
the son of God, and no deceit from Satan would sway him otherwise. Do you see this though? Without being filled with the word of God, which comes from frequent encounter and meditation, easily we can fall into this trap. So we, we talked a bit about this last week with the helmet of salvation. It's frequent meditation on the word of God that allows us to be intimately connected with him and understanding of his heart. So this is where I want to insert how not knowing God's heart and his word intimately can hurt us when it's twisted before us, okay? So a perfect example of this is in the Garden of Eden. So I'll talk on this briefly. So Satan's first attack was leveled against the word of God. If he could make Eve confused about what God said or to even doubt what God said originally in the Garden, then his battle was won. So Satan, this is from... Um, Genesis chapter three. So Satan says, has God, oh, well, here's Satan. Um, yes. So Satan's talking in, in Genesis three, but God's command was in, was in Genesis two. Satan says, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So Satan took God's positive command in Genesis two, which says of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat and twisted it to essentially God won't let you eat of every tree. And Eve struggles here. She really does. She doesn't seem to know God's command or or rather his heart behind the command. It's here where Satan attacks. She gets, or Satan gets Eve to doubt God's judgment and his word. Genesis 3 verse 4, "You you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He tries to get Eve to doubt the goodness of God. If God is lying to her, if God is holding this from her, withholding this, how can he be good? What, what is he trying to do here? If this fruit is something good for her, why doesn't God want her to have it? That's the dilemma here. And this is what Satan is seeding into her mind. Satan's words, which were designed to get Eve to debate God's command, directly suggest that God does not know what is best here and in this situation. Do you guys see that? He was able to gain, uh, he was able to inject this internal doubt as Eve was not truly familiar with God's word here or his character. And as such, the same applies to us. If we don't understand God's word adequately and his heart, We are vulnerable to attack and manipulation from Satan. Cool. So let's have a look at Satan's final proposition. Okay. So verse eight uh, in Matthew. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So essentially what's going on here? It's this... This vision invites Jesus to take a shortcut, to take a shortcut that doesn't involve the cross. And this this was Jesus' greatest temptation. We see it intimately in the garden. We see him battling this, this temptation before his death. But also we see it with Peter. And I actually want to quickly look into this as well. In Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. 
and verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Firstly, it feels bad to be Peter. Like, I can't imagine being called Satan by Jesus. That would be a bit of a, um, an internal yikes. But Jesus is he's not messing around here. Do you guys see that? He, he understands his mission. He's not, he's not dabbling in, in sort of, he's not entertaining the idea is what I'm getting at. He's very stern. He's not messing about. He will not allow himself to be tempted and distracted from God's will. Likewise, when we come to know intimately the character of God, we are able to strongly rebuke anything that does not align with what we know to be true. Okay, so what's Jesus' response to Satan here in Matthew 4, the last bit? He says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus replies with scripture again. Are you seeing this here? He commands the devil to leave. In the same way, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us, James 4 verse 7. It worked for Jesus and it will work for us. So verse 11 here. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Jesus won. How did he win? He recognized, he understands Satan's mode of attack and we should too. It's lies and it's deceit. And what does he do? He brandishes perfect, and he shows perfect mastery of the sword of the spirit. It's God's word and truth, not man's wisdom that granted him this victory. It was intimate understanding of the scripture and Satan could not attack that. He could not get through Jesus's defense due to his intimate understanding of what scripture holds, God's truth, God's promise and God's heart. And without a proper understanding of this, guys, we're hopeless on the battlefield. We really are. So th there are two key things here that I wanted to say. First, we must see temptation for what it is, a lie. It's Satan's deceit. And then we must combat this deceit with the word of God. So this passage is a perfect example. I think this really exemplifies what I'm trying to get about tonight. It's the perfect example of how the sword of the spirit which we take up alongside the rest of the armor of God we've talked about for these six weeks to fight against and directly oppose the lies of Satan. I'll also mention here an interesting point. As I was researching, many scholars make note that none of Jesus's disciples are actually here. Jesus would have likely told the gospel writers what happened when he was tempted in the Judean wilderness, knowing full well how we could learn from how much Jesus, learn much from how Jesus dealt with this temptation here. So here's my final point. We cannot wield this sword. We cannot wield this sword with even a fraction of the, the confidence that Jesus did. If we're not filled with the word of God, how can we expect to? How can we expect to pick up this sword and the responsibility that it bears and the great power and defense that it holds if we don't even know the word of God, if we're not filled and meditating upon it daily, Lord, then we are inherently vulnerable to attack as, as with Eve and as we are constantly in our daily life. Satan just wants that foothold that he wants to seed doubt and, and, and deceit in our lives. And, and if we go back to the text, we need to be well-trained with the sword or absolutely hopeless in the battle. Each passage 
Jesus quoted back to Satan was from Deuteronomy. It's clear Jesus was meditating on the scriptures daily. Psalm, 1, Psalm 119, 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Also Joshua 1 verse 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And also many others in the Psalm and elsewhere in the Bible. And we touched on this last week, guys, and this is the practical application. So really pay attention here. When Satan comes and Satan whispers in your ear, you know what, God, this God thing, does, what's going on? Does he really love you? He, he can't. He doesn't really love you. You don't even entertain the thought for a second. You respond. You respond with biblical truth. You take up this armor of God, the sword of the spirit. You say, I live by faith indeed, by the faithfulness of God's son who loved me and gave himself for me. You understand biblical truth. You're intimately connected with the word of God. Galatians 2.20 there. When Satan, when you're just going about your life, you're having a really difficult season. Satan finds you. He's whispering in your ear, you know, John or insert name. God couldn't love you. Um, do you not remember what you've done in the past? You respond boldly, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And further, there is therefore no, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, Romans 8.1. These are biblical truths that we need to be intimately connected with, that we can respond directly when Satan tries to attack us with his lies and with his deceit, if we are not connected with the word of God, how can we even stand on this battlefield? It's a real fight, guys. It really is. This is the practical application. We need to be intimately meditating on the word of God to be able to respond to Satan's deceit and actually understand these biblical truths. Cool. So any lie here, any lie Satan utters in your ear, you take before the word of God, and directly rebuke it for what it is. Deceit that is intended to tear you down. Okay, this is my closing comments. We effectively resist these lies, this deceit and temptation in the same way that Jesus did, by countering Satan's seductive lies, by shining the light of God's truth upon them. Without an understanding of the word of God, we're poorly armed in the fight against temptation. We are soldiers who are unequipped for the battle. As such, take up your sword of the spirit and together with the rest of the armor of God that we've been talking about, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, stand, stand firm and fight. So that's what I want to share today, guys. I uh, hope it's been a nice finish to the series. I'll just pray and we'll finish up. Father God, um, thank you for who you are, Lord. And thank you that you don't abandon us in, in this war that we're facing, Lord, that you grant us the strength, you grant us the ability to stand in this battle, Lord. You supply us with your armor, with your character, your truth that we can use in this battle, Lord. Uh, I pray that you'd support us, Lord. I pray that you'd be, be with us, Lord. Bless this ministry. And I hope that these words that you've spoken through me penetrate into our hearts, Lord, and make a genuine change and encourage us to connect with your word, Lord. In your name, amen.